guy. Ever wonder what it's like to face a 350-pound lineman who wants to smash you into the ground? I know what that feels like. Scott Mitchell here, and I want to tell you about my podcast, Helmets Off, where I talk about the pressures of being an NFL quarterback and some of the other pressures pro athletes face when the helmet is off. It's a podcast, and you can get it free on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and at kslsports.com. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. This is part two of our episode with Dara Brewstein. I was living in my car, traveling on the road all the time, staying in two and a half star hotels and eating by myself at Carrabba's and going to Target to fill my time because I was bored and not feeling like this was really what dreams were made of. So it wasn't really panning out. And then I lost that job because the company went under and it was three months after I had bought the house that was on the checklist which I had bought at the tender age of 23 because I had a restraining order against my landlord and I was afraid to have another one. Dara, we heard a lot about your entrepreneurial journey so far uh, in part one. Uh, For part two, I want to focus on the future. I want to hear about what's going forward Um, and specifically how you're designing the future and, and kind of the theme of this virtual summit you've got coming up. It's a perfect segue and play on words, say designing the future, because that's exactly it. Ultimately, everything we talked about in part one was everything that's taken me to this place that I've designed over the last 10 years. And I came to this point of realization about a year ago where I internally and intrinsically knew in my intuition that there was this new incarnation of my career coming. And I had no idea what it was. And so I spent a ton of time doing a number of exercises from walking around everywhere I went for a six month period with a journal and writing down everything that energized me, anything I was jealous of because I saw that as a cue of something that I wanted, anything friends and contacts came to me for as a resource, anything that I remembered I loved as a kid and so on. So I could start to compile these ideas of like, what could this thing be that's bubbling up? as well as interviewed a lot of the people in my network whom I love and trusted, asking them questions like, when am I at my most powerful? When am I at my weakest? When the chips are down, what do you come to me for? And a number of other things to, again, assess what is it that are patterns here? What maybe am I not seeing in myself that others see in me and that I can suss out some patterns for? And started doing that plus a number of other things like meditating or other things that would help me feel more centered and clear on whatever that intuition was. And through that course of time, I came to recognize that the number one thing people came to me for and asked me about was, how do you live the life that you do? And I think what they meant by that was, how do you live a life where you get to completely choose how you spend your time and design this life where you're traveling half the time, you own several businesses, you get to be in fascinating rooms, whether it's Forbes, Davos, TED, the UN, you're friends with famous names, like And all these things that really just happened organically as I've continued to evolve in my journey. And I realized that everything that I had been doing and creating as practices, habits, strategies, and methodologies for myself over the last decade or more 
for things that other people would really benefit from learning. So I committed to the idea that I'm going to start sharing this really intentionally and I'm going to do it for free for a long time because I wanted to share it from that place of giving without any strings, just like we talked about with Give It Forward. And I also wanted to understand what is it that's going to be helpful to people before I ever consider could this be something I charge for or have a business around. And so when I did that, I think much like many things in my life and other people's lives, I mentioned the alchemist earlier, it's very much the Paolo Coelho idea of if you really want it, that the universe will conspire in your favor to help you achieve it. That I remember in November, I made the commitment that after the really, really burdensome and challenging <laughs> trial and tribulation process of writing my first book and distributing it, I didn't know that I'd have it in me to do it again. But I came to this realization that it's exactly was the time for me to write another book. And I said to myself, I'm going to write a New York Times bestseller. And then I started putting that those words into action and telling other people and the second I started doing that, I got contacted by several literary agents and chose one and started working on a book. And through that process, decided that I wanted to run this virtual summit that you alluded to, because I felt that it could be a really great platform to invite people all over the world so that geography wouldn't be an issue and make it free so that money wouldn't be a prohibiting factor either. And invite people into this framework with the folks who are my mentors and peers who helped me along this journey to basically take the 10 years of learning I did and compile it into one blueprint through this 20 hours of speaking sessions totally for free and online. So um, tell us a little bit more about this life by design instead of by default and maybe times in your life when it was a bit more by default and kind of how you came to this. Thank you. Yes. So ultimately, I think it's really natural to be chasing other people's versions of success. And I know that because it's what I did, that I was given this rubric that basically said, you know, go to college, get good grades, get a job, get a house, happily ever after. And what I found out when I started pursuing that path was that none of that was true for me. And the reason I learned that was because I got my first job after college doing the thing that I thought was the right thing to do, which is take the thing that you're really excited and passionate about which for me was fashion, and make it into your career. So I got this job in the wholesale fashion world, and I was hitting my three-year sales goal in 10 months. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm like really doing this the way everyone told me to. But I was miserable. I had people around me who were cutting me down because the industry I learned was very catty. I was living in my car, traveling on the road all the time, staying in two-and-a-half-star hotels and eating by myself at Carrabba's and going to Target to fill my time because I was bored, and not feeling like this was really the, what dreams were made of. So it wasn't really panning out. And then I lost that job because the company went under, and it was three months after I had bought the house that was on the checklist, which I had bought at the tender age of 23 because I had a restraining order against my landlord, and I was afraid to have another one. And suddenly I'm 23 years old with a mortgage and no income and I'm feeling really scared and I'm feeling really afraid that I'm going to foreclose on this house and what am I going to do next? So I got another job and then I lost that job because we're in the 2007, 2008, 2009 era where the economy is falling, down, is falling into pieces and they couldn't afford to keep me. And then it happened again where I lost my third job in the course of three years and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm doing everything right. I'm hitting all my sales goals at work. I'm checking the boxes, but this just isn't panning out. So I'm recognizing suddenly that the way that other people have told me that 
success looks just wasn't working for me. And so at that point, after sort of the three strikes, I sat down and thought, well, being that this isn't working, there's got to be another way. And what is it that if I could go another way, would it be that I'd really want? Because rather than just passively taking the next thing that comes my way, what if I could design that and choose it and be more proactive in that process? So that's what I began to do. I started mapping out what could that life look like? I had always known I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but even though that word wasn't one that I had really known, I just knew I wanted to have a business. And it really, for me especially, took away what I thought was the big leap or the big fear of jumping into the unknown with abandon to become an entrepreneur. Because everyone always said, oh, it's so risky to do that. When I had come to find in my experience that the risk was in working for someone else because I'd show up to work one day and I wouldn't have a job anymore. Whereas as an entrepreneur, at least I'd know the status of how everything fared at any given point in time and could take my future into my own hands. So that was really this crux and turning point for me of figuring out rather than just taking the path that everyone told me was the path to travel to let me design intentionally the life that I want to live. You know, I, I really identify with your story. I remember um, dropping out of university to start a business and that didn't go over well in the family I grew up in where everybody has at least bachelor's degrees, if not master's and PhDs. And it was bad enough that I was in art school to begin with. Right. But, uh, <laughs> later, cause all these businesses I started weren't working, but later, uh, you know, I was always starting a business at night and have a day, have a day job. And I had somehow wiggled my way onto being a mergers and acquisitions team member for Citigroup, who was the, we, I was in mid market. They were the number one mid-market M&A firm in the world at the time. And I remember one day when the CEO all called us to the top floor of this kind of skyscraper type building. And I started looking around and I was like, we're all getting fired or something. Like something is going on here. And uh, sure enough, they call some people in and they've completely shut down the entire division. And like people who've had this job for 28 years uh, are... <laughs> out of a job and they hand selected some people to relocate to San Francisco to keep going under another division for the same market. But I remember just laughing to myself thinking like every, this is like the should everybody who was really upset that I had dropped out of university to start a business. This is the kind of job they would wish for me to have. And <laughs> it's no better. You know, it's, it's listen, I don't know. You can argue different parts of things, but to me just thinking the like, man, jobs aren't all they're cut out to be either, you know? Totally. That there's just no one path for everyone. I think that's really the through line here at the thesis, that just because it works for someone else, it doesn't mean it has to work for you or that it will work for you. And it's really about that intentionality around stopping and pausing and just questioning and saying, is this really fulfilling for me? Is this really the thing that I want to be doing? rather than just taking it at face value and saying, this just must be how it needs to occur. Yeah. And I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty rough on jobs in general, but they definitely can serve their place. Obviously people raise a lot of families on jobs. And after being my own boss for, you know, started a private equity fund, did these things for eight years, I did go back to having a job. There was a certain skill set I wanted to learn. So I picked who I thought was the number one consulting firm in the world at that thing and went and worked for them for two and a half years, kind of as like a replacement MBA, you know, kind of thing. Totally. And, um, but it, it's just, I guess for me, it was so much of the, like, everybody else is supposed to's aren't nearly what they're cracked up to be. Um, kind of seems like that's a little bit of your theme of like one path's not for everyone. Is that, 
Fair. Absolutely. So um, talk a little bit more about, you know, at the end of part one, we talked about who's going to be in this virtual summit, but uh, let's, you know, maybe go through some of those names again and, and talk about why you chose who you chose and, and what you think would be in it for people to listen to them. The summit is three days and it kicks off with Deepak Chopra. And the reason I wanted Deepak to be in this is because he really is this grounding presence to start a conference that's all about how do you intentionally design your life. And I think for many people that can be scary and overwhelming and seem really inaccessible. So I wanted to start with Deepak to be like, okay, he's here. He's talking to us specifically. He's explaining to us why having a relationship with yourself is the most important fundamental thing to begin with before we go into any strategies or tools or otherwise. And he helps lead the audience through a mindfulness practice. And he talks about the role of money and fear and a number of other things that I think are a really great starting point. And then through the course of that day, we've got a number of folks who talk about things like the art and science of living and flow, rather than the idea that everything needs to be a hustle and a grind. We've got folks like we have a mindful psychotherapist who basically takes everything Deepak talks about and brings it down to a really human level because Deepak is very, very esoteric in a beautiful way. Whereas Lena comes in and talks about it in a way that we call it for real people. Like here's the way to just disseminate it into your life in a practical way in a world that can be really busy and noisy. And then there's a number of other things that happen that day about like getting over your fears how to figure out what you're passionate about and how to or how to not translate that into the work that you do because sometimes it can feel really daunting to say, what do I love? What am I passionate about? How do I make that into my career as opposed to perhaps flipping it and saying, what am I good at? How can I fall in love with the career around that and then become passionate as a result, which for me was exactly what happened with equitable payments. I went into it thinking this is so unsexy. There's no way I'm going to like credit card payments and then really fell in love with it because of the skills I was able to use and other things I was able to become attracted to. Um, and then that day closes off with Ronnie Turioff, whom I mentioned earlier, who is this incredible human who is a two-time Olympian. He's an NBA champion and he talks about the idea of first having massive dreams and how you achieve them. And then what do you do once you have achieved them? Because he was 35 years old when he retired after a 10-year career in the NBA. And for most people, you'd think, wow, like once you hit your massive goals, you're probably retired. Nope. I mean, you're retired, but he's 35 and he's got a lot of life hopefully left to live. So he talks a lot about what do you do then as well. And then day two is all about the entrepreneurial journey or your career that helps to fund everything that you design and decide you want as your lifestyle designer blueprint in day one and integrates into it rather than what I think we can often become guilty of, which is shoving the life that we want into the nooks and crannies of time that are left over from the work that we do. And instead this flips it and says, okay, you know what you want your life to look like. How do you make sure that you design your career or your business to uplift that and finance it? And that day is kicked off by Kat Cole, who is one of the best speakers that I have ever heard she is an exceptional woman who is the COO. She's number two at a billion-dollar food brand called Focus Brands. She's the parent company to Annie Ann's and Moe's and Schlotsky's and Carvel and a number of others. She used to be one of the executives at Hooters, which is a really fascinating conversation as well for a really progressive woman to share about that experience. And um, she used to be president of Cinnabon and just is this amazing humanitarian wife and mom as well. And she talks about the idea of being a nonconformist and how to tackle problems that are small enough to tackle, but big enough to matter, and a number of other really actionable steps. 
And the rest of that day just takes you through real stuff for your career or your business to grow them in a way that is integrative into day one. And then day three is kicked off by Adam Grant, who we referenced earlier. He's a Wharton professor, a viral TED speaker, a three-time best-selling author. And he talks about both generosity and how that really is the key to success. And he walks us through that as well as how to have a meaningful career that helps you to have a more meaningful life uh, based on a lot of studies that he's done. And then that day is all about the networks and the community that you'll develop to help uplift you, make life a lot less lonely, and help you achieve the dreams and the goals that you've set out for yourself more quickly than you will on your own. And then that day is closed out by Jen Sincero, who is the number one New York Times bestselling author of You Are a Badass and You Are a Badass at Making Money. And she helps debunk a lot of myths around money, a lot of limiting beliefs we might have around them as well as talks a lot about the importance of the people that you surround yourself with to help you get closer to the goals that you're seeking. So over the course of the three days, it gives you sort of this equation and blueprint to get to the success that you've designed for yourself. So I'm sitting here thinking like, I got to make sure I make time for that. I, gotta, <laughs> I want to take that. So please do. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about this because uh, I just started like, thinking about some of the questions or some of the topics you're bringing up there. Um, I guess one of my questions is um, maybe taking a slightly different direction. If I'm a corporate leader, if I'm an entrepreneur who has a team um, and I want to help the people who, who work for me in the organization have lives that they enjoy. And there's obviously like certain limitations because it's an organization or these things like that. But just with all this research and these interviews you've done and you've grown teams in the past, what kind of advice would you have for, for folks who have a lot of influence in, in the lives of others, specifically those who work for them? It's such a cool question because it can be really easy to neglect that influence that you have and the profound amount of control you can have over how someone spends their time. And I'm personally just such a believer that time is such a, is probably our most valuable resource. And, that for me, freedom really is around how you spend your time. And if someone is a leader, whether they're a boss or a manager, whatever that might look like, that you take that and you take stock of that and that you don't begrudge or belittle the fact that you really are in control of so much of someone's uh, time, that it's their best years, it's their best hours during the day. So I think the more that you can get to know the people that work with you and understand what it is that would be really valuable to them. Sometimes it's freeing up their time and that's an incentive that they love. Other times it's offering resources like this to them. That's one of the things that I've really learned that whenever I interview someone to join our team and I ask them what motivates them, well, certainly there might be some amount of reticence, to be honest with me, if the answer is something like money. Typically they say, you know, actually it's not money, it's purpose and meaning. And so if you can get under the hood with your team and ask those types of questions and understand and then create space for and resources to help them either learn more about that within the work environment or give them the ability to do it outside of the work environment or create time off or downtime for them to do it. I think it's just so freeing and wonderful to give them that opportunity and in turn makes them want to work for you more because they understand that you're identifying them as a whole human, not just as this person who comes on and puts on their work title and, you know, grinds out a handful of hours during the day for you and then goes home and they have this other life. But again, this idea of integration, I just believe that we are full, whole humans all the time and that we don't live in silos, that you're not 
your home person and then your work person and then your friendship and social person and then maybe your spiritual person or health and wellness person, that everything bleeds beautifully into the other environments. And then if you can wholly come into each one of those spheres as yourself, that that environment is better for it and you're better for it. So if you can be a leader who emphasizes that, it's fantastic. And one tool that we use in my team that's been really helpful to learn some of that is what we call a user manual. And it's a set of questions that we have everyone when they join our team fill out. And it's things like, what can we do to get a gold star with you as your teammates? Or what are pet peeves of yours with your coworkers? Or how do you best like to communicate or work? And a number of things like that, or what would we be, we be most surprised to learn about you? And we have them publicly in a Google Drive folder where anyone can go look at them at any time along with their Myers-Briggs and StrengthsFinder assessment to really understand, like, how does this person get energy? What do they enjoy? What don't they enjoy? How can I really be the best collaborator with them in a way that you don't always have the opportunity to get into that depth of conversation with someone? Uh, I'm glad you brought up StrengthsFinder. Um, I'm, I'm such a fan of that methodology. Um, what would you say to someone who... Uh, well, I'll separate this into two, two questions. I'll ask the first one first. What would you say, like, I, I have a team and I think this is something I'm really interested in. And at the same time, I, I probably have a little bit of trepidation about disappointing people. And what if they ask for things I can't give them? Or what if they ask for things that I don't want to give them? How would you coach me through that type of a situation of, I want to ask my employees what would make life better for them? but I'm hesitating because I'm concerned what they might bring up. Totally. I think it's similar to the framework for the Give It Forward Challenge that you get to choose the boundaries and how you demonstrate it. So in a case like that, I'd probably just start by saying, listen, I'm not the magic fairy. I'm not Santa Claus. I'm not promising that anything you ask, I will just create as an outcome. But explain that your intention is why you're coming to the table with this, that your intention is to understand this because you want to do your best to make this an environment where X, Y, Z is fulfilled for them or where you're demonstrating that you see that they're a human who has more complexity to them than just them showing up for work, as we talked about earlier. And the more you can frame it that way or put boundaries around it to say some or all of this may be achieved, ultimately know that my intention is to try and do as much as is within the framework that is reasonable within the boundaries of our business or whatever you want to say. But I think that's just really a great honest place to come from. Because again, much like the guy Sean with the golf example, I never promised him that I would do it, but I promised him I would try. And as long as you can do that, that often goes just as far with someone for them to know that you cared enough to try rather than to just either shut it down right away or not ask at all. Yeah, that's a great answer because it, uh, you know, takes my anxiety away as the leader, you know, to have that set up front instead of doing, because I feel like if I offered and then they asked, they were vulnerable enough to ask. And then I say, no, it's almost like I'm in a worse position than having started. Totally. But if I can lead off with that caveat, that makes a ton of sense to me. I guess my follow-up question is methodology like strength finders. If people don't know what it is, you should get the book and take the test. But it's, I describe it as the like, Hey, Michael Jordan didn't make a lot of money playing ba- playing baseball. So why don't we help figure out what our basketball is and double down on that kind of thing. I love that. <laughs> um, but, um, 
advice that you would have for for managers or leaders or supervisors who are meeting with someone and trying to help them, you know, live life on purpose, design a future for themselves, um, if they're bringing up things that are clearly at odds with their strengths, um, any advice about how to like gently guide them, you know, how to help them, um, how to help them work towards things that have a higher probability of working for them or or maybe you wouldn't do that, but what would be your, what would be your advice? Or what would be your approach to someone saying, you know, I want to help my people, but so-and-so wants something that doesn't seem to match up with what they're, you know, likely have a high probability of achieving. Yeah. It's interesting for sure, because on the one hand, if they're wanting to do something that doesn't match up with, let's say their job description, that's a tough spot because you may or may not have the flexibility to rotate what their job is to fit that better. In some cases, too, I think you've just got to let people experience for themselves and learn by doing. So you might see that that doesn't align with their strengths, but they don't recognize that yet. So maybe it's just you being a listening ear or someone who is committed to showing up on the other end of the outcome of that situation to ask questions that might help them uncover them that for themselves. So just being this like learning partner or this listening and almost this design thinking model way of asking questions where you're not telling them, but you're showing them through your questions and helping them get down a path to learn for themselves. Yeah, that's such a good point. And besides who am I to judge what they will or won't be good at? Um, I guess it makes me think too, as you were saying that I was thinking, I know the strength finders book itself. A lot of times is saying, if you're doing this, you may want to look for someone with those type of strengths to partner up with. It sounds like your twin was that a bit for you. Is that fair assessment? 100%. We have exact opposite skills and strengths, and it's perfectly why we are business partners. What, what are some of her strengths? He actually, so oh, he, sorry. I, and it's fine. I call him the minutia guy, and I don't know if he'd love that, but I call him <laughs> that because he is like the through and through COO. He is the ops guy. He loves data. He is a math genius, actually, like certifiably. He is so great at just getting in the weeds in a way that I can, but it, it is not energizing for me. It's really demotivating for me. I don't enjoy it at all versus I'm a big picture thinker. I'm a relationship person. I'm more of like the business development and sales mindedness. And he, if you could leave him in a room all day and not a single person came around, he'd be very happy. So it's exactly why we have this great integrative place. And then for us too, I think the other part that really works is we have this natural trust. We've known each other since the womb. I always say, if you can share a womb, you can share a business <laughs> because I, I couldn't implicitly trust anyone more than to know if I ask him to do something or he asked me to do something that it will happen. And we don't have to micromanage or check in or wonder, did that happen? Did it happen? Well, because we've known each other's work habits our entire life. Yeah, that's great. Well, listen, thanks for taking so much time with us today. Um, people who want to connect with you or follow you on social or, or sign up uh, for the virtual summit or things like this, what, where, should they, where should they be checking you out? Thank you for asking. If you want to check out the summit, I want to reiterate that it's entirely free. So I encourage you to do it and it's all online. So you don't have to go anywhere. You can watch in your pajamas from your computer if you so choose. Um, and you just go to lifebydesignsummit.com. And if you want to just learn more about me or catch me on social, it's dara.co. It's spelled like Farah with a D or Dara B on Instagram. Love it. Okay. Well, once you get this next book written, you'll have to come back on the show and tell us all about it. I'd be flattered. Thank you.
Okay, thanks for making time. Thank you. At Farmers Insurance, we know a roof can withstand a lot. One exception being an airborne car. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state.